Welcome to the Zero Waste Code podcast, brought to you by Green Code. We are a tech startup based down in Cornwall, and it is our mission to reduce food waste in the hospitality and food service sector. In today's episode, we speak to Martin Rolader from Olio, the number one free sharing app, about their newest feature, Made. Next up, we hear from Claire Fisher from the Marine Conservation Society about the importance of cleaning up our oceans. Finally, Zoe Lenkovich tells us about how WasteAid are working to provide waste solutions in some of the world's poorest places. First up, here's Martin from Olio. So today we're here with Martin from Olio. Welcome to Zero Waste Code. Would you like to say a little bit about yourself and your role with Olio? Yeah, great, Amy. Thank you. Good afternoon. And thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I'm Martin Rolid. I'm the uh, director of Olio for Business uh, at, at Olio. I joined in December of 2019. Um, I've been in a sort of business development uh, roles for the past 20 years or so, primarily with food manufacturers. So it's great now to be in the space of, of sustainability, which has always been close to my heart and working uh, to end food waste. Uh, and, uh, and I'm really proud to be on that mission and, and part of the Olio team. Fantastic. So could you tell us, so what is Olio? What does the app do? Yeah, Olio is a, a neighborhood app. And, and what it does is it aims to connect neighbors with each other through sort of sustainability. Um, it, it was born actually out of a light bulb moment that Tessa Clark, our co-founder, had back in 2015 when she was working in Switzerland and moving back to the UK. Uh, she realized that she had a lot of surplus food in her fridge and pantry and the moving company wouldn't take it uh, for whatever reasons related to food safety. And because she comes from a farming background and food has always been precious to her, she went around sort of the streets and the neighborhood to see if anyone would take it. And quite frankly, I think people thought that she was a little bit crazy. Um, so she, that's when she realized that there was this problem actually that needed a solution. And she touched base with her uh, friend from uh, university, Sasha Celestial One. And yep, that's, uh, that's her real last name. Um, and that's how Olio was born. And today we have over 2.4 million users in uh, 54 countries uh, where Olioers are sharing their surplus food and non-food actually as well uh, on the Olio app. Fantastic. So you mentioned food waste just briefly there. What issues are, are Olio trying to combat? Yeah, well, our core mission is around uh, food waste reduction, but we really are also all about uh, community building and, and promoting sustainable living. You know, for example, uh, we introduced uh, recently uh, our goals feature on the app, which is a way of providing uh, guidance uh, to our Olio users on how to live more sustainably via prompts, uh, promoting them uh, promoting more sustainable alternatives. So think, for example, switching your plastic toothbrush to a bamboo one. But, but food waste reduction is our number one uh, mission. In fact, it should actually be the number one mission for, for everyone. If you, if you consider uh, there's an organization called Project Drawdown 
that released a report in March of this year. And this report was uh, the compilation of work from several of the world's leading climate change scientists. And uh, the conclusion from that was that food waste reduction is the number one way that we as individuals can reduce CO2 emissions, uh, with number two uh, being health and education. And actually number three was a plant-based diet, which is great because I'm, I also happen to be a vegan. So really, if you think about it, when it comes to climate change, you know, we simply do not have the luxury of time uh, and, and that's why it's so important to act now and food waste uh, reduction is such an important, has such an important impact on climate change that we really need to address it as a matter of urgency. Would you be able to tell us how specifically combating food waste can help fight climate change? What is it about food waste that directly affects climate change? Yeah, well, I mentioned um, uh, the project uh, drawdown conclusions, but it's also, um, unfortunately, not such a well-known fact, but it is a fact that around one-third of all food that is produced globally today goes to waste. And, uh, and when food actually, and when food waste ends up in landfill, it also releases methane gas, which is around 27 times more powerful than uh, CO2. So that has a huge uh, impact. And also, besides the fact that we're wasting all that food, consider all the resources that went into producing that food, you know, precious resources, like uh, I think it's about a quarter of the world's fresh water that goes into producing the food that we end up throwing away. Um, also, an area the size of China would have been used to produce the food that we end up throwing away. And that's, that area, the size of China, would not have been sort of, you know, ready for, for seeding and planting and harvesting. There would have been massive deforestation uh, associated with it as well. So, you know, all these things are, are happening to, in the end, produce food that will end up in the bin and potentially in landfill. You know, when we talk about food waste, if, if food waste were a country, it would be the third largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions behind China and the US. Oh, thank you. So did Olio play a particular role during lockdown with the food shortages? Yeah, absolutely. We, we, um, we supported hundreds of businesses actually to rescue uh, the excess food that they had due to the sudden lockdown. You know, ordinarily our food waste heroes would rescue smaller amounts of foods. I mean, we, we did some rescues in one day that were almost 10 tons of food. Um, so o over the period of the lockdown, we rescued hundreds of tons of surplus food from businesses that were at risk of, of going to waste, but also uh, surplus food that the charities were not able to take because we, we work very closely with the charities. Uh, we don't want Azolio to take away surplus food that should go to charities in the first place, but we obviously are able to take the surplus food that the charities are not able to take. The other, the other thing is, besides obviously supporting the businesses, um, what we found is through the app, we are able to reach people, those people that have, were most vulnerable 
uh, or at risk who could not get to the supermarkets or to food banks. Um, and we did this by um, creating the forum for them to put requests via the app of food that they were in need of. And then other oliers in the neighborhood would drop off uh, what they could at those people's houses and the front door uh, to share the surplus food with them. We also uh, initiated some campaigns like the Cook for Kids campaign um, because we recognized obviously that uh, school kids were not getting their free school lunches and we worked with uh, uh, 15 celebrity chefs to create these sort of simple recipes for oliers to prepare meals and share those meals with other families with school going kids so that the kids didn't go hungry. And we did something similar also with um, our Cook for Carers campaign, which was around supporting the NHS staff who did not have the time to shop, let alone uh, cook. Fantastic. So has Polio made any changes to its operation or guidelines since the pandemic, such as contact free pickups, because it obviously relies on community? Yeah, yeah, we absolutely have. I mean, since day one, we've obviously followed very closely the government guidance on this. Uh, you know, for example, at the start of the lockdown, we made sure that all collections uh, were occurring. I'm talking about the sharing with the neighbors, but also the collections from businesses, that they were occurring in combination with that uh, necessary trip to the supermarket or pharmacy or whatever or in combination with your uh, the time allotted for outdoor exercise. So we didn't want people, our food waste heroes, or our, our people donating on the app to make an extra trip just for that. We also introduced the uh, no contact sharing, where the items uh, that households were donated were left outside the door with names on the bags of the people that had requested and were coming to collect. Um, Obviously, you know, we, we, we appreciate that uh, one of our value propositions of our platform is that what we call doorstep connections, but, uh, you know, we had to obviously follow the guidelines. Um, and the other thing is, uh, obviously, for the food waste heroes that were going to the businesses to rescue surplus food, we had very strict rules on, uh, on the social distancing requirements, uh, when making the collections and also the wearing of face masks and so on. But it's something that, uh, you know, it was well well managed. People, you know, uh, abided by all, all the guidance. Uh, and in that way, we were able to continue to help those people in need during the pandemic, which is great. Fantastic. So just um, moving on from what you just said there, how can businesses benefit from using Olio? Yeah, so... In a lot of, in, in many ways, actually, I mean, they can benefit in the first instance by becoming a zero surplus food waste business or non-food for that matter, because we also rescue non-food. And they can achieve this by, you know, at the same time supporting their local community. So you have the food waste reduction, but you also have the uh, community building uh, element. There is a growing awareness, after all, thankfully, around food waste. I have to say, you know, be, even for myself, before I joined Olio, I was not 
sufficiently aware of how big a problem food waste uh, is. Uh, and now I am, and uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of press and, and, and uh, podcasts like this around the topic, which is great. And we need to continue to build that awareness. But th that's what, what I mean. You see this growing awareness and a growing movement as well of, of people moving towards a more sustainable lifestyles. So it's kind of the reduce, reuse, recycle mindset that has really come to the fore. And also an awareness um, of uh, the need to be there to support each other, you know, your neighbors. That's been intensified uh, uh, during this pandemic. So this means that consumers are really more and more making their consumption choices with this in mind. And also supporting brands that are uh, walking the talk on all things sustainability rather than just talking the talk. And, and parallel to this, I think the other side is when, particularly when you consider that, I think it's by 2030, 75% of the workforce will be millennials, the employee engagement element and, and, and keeping and attracting the right talent is key for businesses going forward. And, you know, th those employees are looking at the track record of their the company that they work for in terms of what are they doing around sustainability, both in terms of the environment, but also the, the social element. I think the other thing is that if you look at um, potential changes in legislation, like for example, what happened in France at the end of 2016 with the food law that came in, into place, fining supermarkets up to... Uh, 10,000 euros for throwing away food that is still edible. These kind of legislative measures are bound to come in at some point in time. Also, we're seeing now a push for, uh, in the UK, for mandatory uh, food waste reporting for businesses. And also, uh, in terms of the new environmental bill that's being proposed, uh, a call for the separation of waste in, in commercial enterprises with food waste having its own stream. So from that perspective, what we as Olio can do is support businesses to future-proof themselves, if you like, um, for what is sure to come. Wonderful. So is one of the ways you can do that through the Food Waste Heroes program? Would you be able to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, in, in addition to the household, uh, to household sharing on the app, we, we're obviously also partnering with uh, thousands of UK business sites to rescue their surplus food and non-food, as I said, through what we call our Food Waste Hero program. Um, we have actually to date just over 10,000 uh, food safety trained Food Waste Hero volunteers in the UK that are supporting this program. And that number is, I mean, when I joined, we were at 6,000. We're now at, at 10,000, uh, eight or nine months later. Um, also, you may have seen some recent press releases on our nationwide partnership with Tesco, for example, where we're going to uh, be supporting all 2,700 Tesco stores across the UK to be truly zero surplus food waste. So really what we as Olio do through our Food Waste Heroes program is we close a critical gap in the, when you think of the food waste hierarchy, in that what I said already, we take what charities are unable to take, 
and we can take all of it, all the surplus edible food that is left over uh, to make sure that it doesn't go further down the waste stream. Because if you think about it, when we live in a world where somewhere between seven and 800 million people are food insecure, I think it's almost 2 billion that are malnourished. In the UK, it's, it's over 8 million people that are suffering from food insecurity. No surplus edible food should go to animal feed or uh, anaerobic digestion or compost, and worst case, to landfill. It should go to humans first. So in, in that way, we're actually quite proud of the fact that um, you know, besides supporting businesses to reduce their waste, we're also helping them to support the communities through the sharing experience uh, by reaching those most vulnerable that charities may not be able to reach. And also, um, in a way, making nutritious food available for free on the app to those who may not otherwise have access to it because we know that uh, on the app, Th you know, things like fresh produce, you know, vegetables and fruits are also shared. Great stuff. So other than food, Olio also does non-food items, as you've mentioned. So could you tell us a little bit about your newest feature, MADE, and how in particular people can use this around Christmas time? Yeah, we're, we're really excited with, uh, with the launch of MADE. I mean, it's, a, it's really a neighborhood uh, marketplace that basically you know, allows neighbors to buy and sell homemade food, uh, crafts and arts uh, with it, uh, to each other. So we developed it really in, in direct response to the pandemic because what we're witnessing is a shift in how we live our lives and we, we've almost universally wanting to connect with and, and support uh, our local community. So it's something quite unique that is actually happening right now. And, you know, so we launched it on the uh, 3rd of October. Uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of great things happening already. And we expect, uh, you know, when you think of items like jams and chutneys or sourdough bread, curries, lasagnas, and so on, obviously, uh, you know, as well as cakes, those are probably going to be the most popular items that we're going to see in terms of foodstuffs. And then in terms of handcrafted items, we expect to see a lot of things like soaps and candles, jewelry, art, photography, uh, and knitted items. So, you know, it's a fantastic opportunity to, you know, promote um, homemade items, but also in sustainably uh, because it's kind of an exchange within the neighborhood. These, are, these items are not traveling through, uh, you know, uh, the post or whatever. And it's also, you know, we know that uh, with this pandemic, unfortunately, Christmas markets are going to be impacted. Uh, so it's also a great way to, you know, get some fantastic Christmas gifts to share with, with people. Fantastic. So finally, where can people download the app and use it and follow you on social media? Yeah, that's, uh, firstly, I would highly encourage people who haven't downloaded the app to, to download it uh, ASAP. Uh, you can download it on the App Store or on Google Play. It's also web-based. And uh, in terms of uh, following on us on Instagram and Twitter, it's on uh, at Olio, so O-L-I-O underscore E-X. 
And you can also follow us on uh, Facebook and uh, on LinkedIn as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Martin, so much for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure. You're very welcome. Once again, thank you for the opportunity to you know, raise awareness and engage people on this important uh, topic of food waste. Claire Fisher is up next, speaking to us about her work in the Marine Conservation Society. So today we're joined by Claire Fisher from the Marine Conservation Society. Claire, would you be able to tell us what is the Marine Conservation Society and what do you do? Hi, Amy. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're sort of the UK's leading marine conservation charity. Um, we've actually been going for 30 years and bizarrely, we're based in, in landlocked Herefordshire. Um, we've got three main work areas. Um, so the, the key ones are reducing pollution on beaches and in the ocean. Um, so it's our clean seas area. And uh, we try to do that through behaviour change by working with consumers you and me industry and governments and what we're very keen on at the moment is reducing our reliance on single-use um, plastic so that's really key um, to, to what we're doing at the moment and we're also looking at unseen chemical pollution as well so that's one of our areas um, another of our key areas is encouraging sustainable fishing methods um, so we want to see overfishing stopped to help the depleted stocks recover. And alongside that, we also um, promote the eating of sustainable seafood um, via something called the Good Fish Guide, um, which is um, a way that consumers and businesses like restaurants and chefs um, can go onto um, our, our website and, and look at the fish that we're recommending as, as green, good to eat, and down the other end of the scale, bad, do not touch. And then the third area of our work um, is called Ocean Recovery. And what we want, what we're doing in that area is trying to get more of the ocean protected. Um, and, and those areas that are protected, we want to make sure that their protection measures are properly managed because it's all very well um, governments across the world, really, um, putting marine protected areas or marine conservation zones in place. But unless those areas are managed properly and are actually doing what they say they're going to do on the tin, they're just pa pa paper parks and, and we really don't want that. And so we do that by working with local management authorities and working out in local, local communities. So those are really our three main work areas. So what's the biggest issue our oceans face? Is there a one that is the worst? Well, I suppose mm, it's difficult to say really because obviously climate change is, is sort of is sort of coming up on the outside if you like and that's a massive problem for our for our oceans at, at, at the moment i mean if you're going to put it simply um the problem is that we put too much too much rubbish into the sea we take too many fish out and then we're not protecting a mu as much as the as the sea the ocean whatever you want to call it as as needs be and combined with those three issues um then we've got climate change which is accelerating um and and probably is 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 the biggest single threat of all. So, so that's really, really where we are. And with, with climate change, um, I, I think a lot of people, because they don't see the ocean, they may not live near the coast, they don't really consider it as being a tool to help um, reduce the impact of climate change. And yet the ocean is actually really critical in mitigating climate change. Um, 
if you think about seagrass meadows, those are those, uh, if, you, if you go to the coast and you see, you know, yachts and boats anchoring in, in low-lying sea areas, you'll see lots of fronds sort of waving in, 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 the, in the water. And those, that's called seagrass. And those seagrass meadows um, can absorb 10% of the carbon that's buried in the ocean sediment every year. So that makes it a really good weapon in the fight uh, against the warming of the planet. Um, some estimates say that seagrass alone can absorb and store at least as much carbon per hectare as trees in UK woodlands. So it's really important that we, the, we really maximise the, the, the health of our oceans. So in our sort of new normal with coronavirus, how is PPE affecting marine life and beach pollution in terms of single use plastics? So we've just got the results back from our Great British Beach Clean. Um, that's an event that we do every September. And even though um, we were sort of, you know, midway pa pandemic in September this year, we still carried on doing our Great British, British Beach Clean in a, in a slightly reduced way. Um, and what we found was that PPE after just, you know, basically, I think by the time we came to do the, the clean in September, masks had only been sort of mandatory in shops um, since July. But in just three months, 30% of the beaches that we cleaned during the Great British Beach Clean, we found PPE on them. And um, because we were doing the Great British Beach Clean in a slightly different way, we were also doing inland uh, picks, uh, litter picks this time. And almost 70% of our inland litter picks volunteers also found PPE. So that's just in three months. I mean, to put it into context, you know, when we did beach cleans previously, any beach cleans, any time of the year, you might find, I don't know, maybe one mask, not even that. So this is, this is a huge jump and we're really worried about that, um, especially because single-use masks, I think, are likely to become the new wet wipes or cigarette butts or, or plastic bottles. Um, you know, if we're going to be using them all the time. It's potentially going to be mandatory for years to come, maybe. Um, so our message is, you know, if you can, wear and wash reusable masks. And if you can't, and you have to wear single-use ones, then make sure you dispose of them correctly. Um, don't just rip them off when you come out of the supermarket and drop them, you know, get rid of them properly. How, how do we get rid of them properly? Well, th this is a tricky one, really, because um, I think the best, the best way to get rid of them is to get rid of them in your black bin um, at home. So, or, or, you know, in a bin outside. Um, they're not compostable, obviously, because they have got plastic in them and, and they've got all the little loops and things. So, unfortunately, the only way you can get rid of them is by sending them to landfill, which is why we'd say, you know, go and buy a cotton one, go and buy one of those really nice, you know, there's so many lovely sort of designs on the market at the moment. Why would you want to wear one of those really boring blue ones? Um, so, you know, buy a reusable one, which you can, you can wash at a high temperature um, and, and, and wear again and again. Okay. So how has the second lockdown affected the Marine Conservation Society's operation or projects? Has it affected people? 
Well, the second lockdown, it, to, to be honest, um, it was the first lockdown that, that really sort of put the brakes on things initially. Um, so our main, one of our main programmes is, is Beach Watch. Um, that's our sort of beach clean and um, survey programme. And of course, it's busy. It's time is during the summer because we run corporate beach cleans and we're also out and about at festivals and events. So all, obviously all that came to a grinding halt pretty much just like every other charity or organisation. Um, but because we run the Great British Beach Clean in September, and over the years, I mean, thousands and thousands of people take part up and down the country. I mean, we sometimes have up to 200 people um, at one clean. So we obviously had to look at the way that we were running this in September. Um, and what we did was we only allowed organisers to run private and very small socially distant um, events um, to allow us to continue to take um, the data from, from that event. And we also did um, an inland cleans, which we'd never done before. Um, and and that, that, that became evidence for part of our, our source to see litter journey, which were, you know, which particularly with um, PPE, as we mentioned before, you know, just you, you might drop your mask, whether it's, you know, intentionally or accidentally in a town in the middle of Birmingham. But if it finds its way to the river and it goes on that journey, it's, some, it's going to end up at the beach, it's going to end up at the sea. So um, inland uh, cleans were really interesting um, because obviously they reflect what eventually will get to the beach. Um, so for the second one, to be honest, it's, it's business really as usual. Um, we're running and, and planning campaigns. Um, we've got some, uh, a campaign called Stop Ocean Threads, which is um, encouraging uh, washing machine manufacturers to agree to put um, uh, filters in washing machines to stop the very small threads that, that, that our clothes sort of shed during washing, most of which are many of which are plastic, getting back into the ocean. So we're, we're running that. We've got a Say No to Red Rated Fish campaign um, and, and we've got an appeal on the go. So we're not, we haven't put the brakes on quite as much second time around, thank goodness. That's fantastic. So shifting the conversation over to food, can you tell us a bit about why we need to be choosing responsible and sustainable seafood sources? Yeah, because if we don't, if, if we don't, um, you know, take fish from sustainable sources, then we, we might not have a fish supper to, to eat anymore. Um, because we need to be taking fish from stocks that are replenishing, so not that are they're running out. Um, buying fish that's come from damaging fishing or farming methods those that would be rated a red in our good good fish guide really has a seriously negative impact on our seas so what makes fish farming sort of or seafood sourcing irresponsible or unsustainable what would be a red rated sort of fish Okay, so, so, so if you're talking unsustainable, um, that's when um, fish are taken out of the sea and there's irreversible habitat damage. So animals and plants are, you know, maybe may dredged from the ocean floor and that's going to take decades, maybe longer for, for those to recover. Or if um, too many fish or shellfish are caught from one stock, um, which means that the population may not be able to replenish. So if, the, if young fish are being caught before they They've got time to reproduce um, so the stock reduces it goes down down and down every year and then it becomes too small to sustain itself so that if fish were, were from the, uh, um, a habitat like that then they would be red rated um, 
And also, you know, it would be unsustainable if, if, if you're not following scientific advice to ensure that the stocks remain in these healthy conditions. So what we want to see are large populations with a mix of, of, of sizes and, and ages. And if you're talking irresponsibility, then obviously not, you know, um, fishers and industry not taking responsibility for making sure that the way they fish has the least impact on, on the wider environment. Um, maybe if we're talking fish farming irresponsibility, then perhaps too many antibiotics um, when there are other options um, within, within fish farming. Um, or also with another, another irresponsibility within fish farming would be not limiting escapes and, and things like that. So, you know, fish that are actually farmed escaping and then going into the wild population, which, you know, is, is bad news really. Okay, so do we know how Brexit will affect how we source seafood? Obviously, the fishing quotas were a big um, news headline during Brexit. Do we know how that's going to affect it? Well, it's quite complex, complex that really, because in some ways there, there won't be very much impact at all because we import most of our cod and haddock, for example, from Norway and Iceland, and neither of those are in the EU. Um, but obviously we'll have to renegotiate trade agreements with them. Uh, some of that is already happening. Um, in other ways, there's going to be a big impact because most of the fish and the shellfish that are caught in the UK, we export directly to the EU. Uh, so it might be difficult for our fishing industry to sell what they've caught if there are no trade agreements or we are going to be having to trade under the WTO rules, the World Trade Organization rules, because then there'll be um, increased costs to sell to the EU, which may sort of impact the profitability of those catches. So that, that could be a really tricky area. And then there's processed food, like, you know, fish fingers and things like that. Um, they have a higher WTO tariff than fresh. So popular brands like fish fingers processed in Germany, so they might end up costing more in post-Brexit world. It's, it's a tricky one. And funnily enough, um, this week, um, the new fisheries bill is expected potentially to come into law. Um, so that will give an idea of, of where, we're, where we're going to be. Um, so it's all, very, it's all very tricky. Anything to do with fisheries. I know, I know when, you, when you think about it in the big picture, fisheries is only a very small part of you know, our, our gross national profit and everything like that but it's so complicated because obviously fish don't know the boundaries the waters move around it's not something that is that is static so it, i think it's going to continue to be very complex okay so nearing the end of the interview now do you have any sort of general advice for people who want to do their bit and help the you know the oceans is there anything that they could be doing at this present time well, there's loads of people can do, you know, from home, really. I mean, I mean, if you live near the coast, then obviously um, go onto our website and, and sign up to be a Beachwatch organiser. You know, we're always looking for new Beachwatch organisers to run beach cleans. And I know they're not going to be in the same way for a little while that they were sort of, you know, two or three years ago. We, we still welcome people running cleans in, in their local area and taking on new beaches. So, you know, if you live near the coast, that's a great way to get involved or 
you know, join our sea search um, diving arm, which is volunteer divers who, um, you know, monitor species and habitats in, in various parts of the country. That's another way. But if, you know, you're in landlocked areas, like the majority of us are, um, there's loads of stuff you can do to help the ocean from your home. I mean, you can cut back on single-use plastic. Um, that's a really straightforward thing. I mean, the more that you know, the more we cut back on single-use plastic, the less will end up in the oceans. So you can th- there's 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 three R's to think about: refuse, reduce, reuse, repurpose, recycle. Um, and a good way of cutting back is actually to start off by making a plastic diary. Um, I, we, we've, in our recent in our magazine that's just about to come out, we've had three or four people who have kept a diary, and you'd be amazed at the amount of plastic. They were amazed at the amount of plastic, single-use plastic that you get through in the kitchen. That we use it all the time, so we don't even recognise it. So keeping a plastic diary for a week is a real eye opener, and then you can maybe start to not use the things that you're using an awful lot of. Um, and you, but we've got a book actually called How to Live Plastic Free, which has got some great tips on, on cutting back there. Um, we, we, people, if they can support our campaigns, that would be brilliant. Um, there's ways that they can do that by just going onto our website. Um, we're a membership charity, so they can join us as a member, which is another really good way of finding out all about our work and that sort of thing. It's about £3.50 a month, so it's dead cheap. Um, and then if you do go down, you do want to cut down on your plastic. We've also got a shop online with lots and lots of plastic-free stuff from beeswax, food wraps, soaps, deodorants, all that sort of thing. So there's loads that people can get, that, that, that people can do. And our website address is mcsuk.org. So um, just hop on it and have a little look. That's absolutely fantastic. Well, it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Lovely. Nice to talk to you. Last but not least, here's Zoe Lenkovich from WasteAid. Fab, so thank you for joining us today, Zoe. Would you like to tell us a little bit about who you are and what your role in WasteAid is? Thanks, Amy, sure. Um, so my name is Zoe Lenkovich and I am Head of Programmes and Engagement at the UK-based charity called WasteAid. We share waste management and recycling skills in lower income countries, helping governments and communities manage their waste properly so that it doesn't create climate change emissions and it doesn't pollute the oceans and the land and to help generate jobs in the process. Fantastic. So could you tell us a little bit more about like the issue? Why was WasteAid founded? Sure, thank you. So um, we come from the UK waste management sector, um, which is, you know, fairly, it's doing fairly well, it's fairly well resourced. Um, but if we look at the bigger picture reasons of why we do waste management, primarily it's public sanitation, yeah, to stop us getting diseases. Um, but the, you know, the, the big issues that have come about lately that people are coming more aware of are um, climate change emissions and, of course, marine plastic pollution. Now, um, what we find is that there's, I think, one in three people around the world don't have any kind of waste management service. So they've never had a waste collection even. And if you imagine what it would be like if we had no bin men at all um, and we just had to deal with our waste ourselves. Um, So when you're in that situation, your options are to either throw your waste just on the ground or in a riverbed or to set it on fire in your yard. 
Um, and both of these obviously have really significant implications for public health and for the environment. So, um, so we, yeah, we work with, uh, with communities and governments to find appropriate waste management solutions for their local areas. So how do you decide upon or come up with the best solution for each project or location? Sure. So um, what we do is, first of all, we will look at how much waste is arising, what different materials are in that waste. So we'll do a, an analysis, um, maybe at a dump site or um, you know wherever the waste is, is arising, um, separate it into food waste, different kinds of plastics, metals, cardboard and so on. And then we'll identify what are the main issues here. And normally I would say it tends to come down to two main materials. One of those is organic waste. So your food waste, garden waste, that kind of thing. And the other one is plastics, particularly flexible plastics. Now, the reason that these two materials tend to be the most problematic and therefore the most um, the area that we focus on the most at waste aid is because they are pretty low value. Yeah, so materials that have a, a reasonably high value, there already tends to be a recycling chain. Um, so, for example, you could go anywhere in the world and you will, or pretty much everywhere in the world, um, somebody there will be collecting aluminium, for example. Right? Aluminium is worth about £600 a tonne. Uh, compare that to steel, it's worth about £60 a tonne. Um, and then, you know, flexible plastics and organic waste are, are pretty much worthless unless you manage them properly. But the problem again then is that food waste and flexible plastics often tend to be mixed in together and it just makes this disgusting mess um, that no one really wants to deal with. Um, can't blame them. Uh, and, you know, once they're mixed in together, you can't really do a lot with it. So then the the often the crux of a project is working out how we can get those materials separated at source so at the point where they become a waste get them put into separate containers and then we can manage them uh, properly and find a sustainable route for their management. Fantastic so can you tell us about some of your most recent projects or specifically what what happened? Sure so um, I've been project managing a small UK aid funded project in the Gambia which is a tiny country on the west coast of Africa um, and there we've been working in a rural village um, on the coast. We've trained 90 villagers and 24 trainers from the capital city to, um, to collect and sort flexible plastics uh, because identifying the different kind of plastic is actually probably the most technical part of the of the process so once we've identified the correct kind of flexible plastic called LDPE which is the plastic it's like slightly stretchy plastic that's usually used for carrier bags and that kind of thing um, and then we melt that plastic very gently over a small flame so it turns from a solid into a liquid, right? So we're not burning it. It's very important to understand we're not burning it. We're keeping the temperature sufficiently low. So it's like melting a block of butter, you know, turning it from solid into a liquid. Once it's turned into a liquid, we mix sand in and stir it around and it turns into a mixture that looks very much like concrete. Um, and then once that's all mixed in together, we just turn it out into tile moulds and we're making paving tiles and roof tiles that are very durable. And what's nice about it is that we're taking a plastic that when it's in the environment, its durability is a problem yeah, because it doesn't biodegrade. It just sticks around forever or breaks into small pieces and gets into the food chain. 
Um, so we're using the durability, you know, that characteristic of the plastic in an application that we want to last a long time. So paving tiles, you know, for people's um, courtyards or for footpaths along the side of roads and that kind of thing. Fantastic. So how did COVID change the way that you worked in these countries? Have you been doing any projects during the pandemic? Sure. So um, obviously it's had it's had quite a big impact. Um, I mean, COVID hasn't really we haven't seen the same sort of numbers yet in Africa as we've seen in Europe. Um, and there could be many reasons for that. And no one's quite sure why. No one's quite sure if it's going to increase eventually in the same way that it has in Europe. Um, but we've had to respond in in a few different ways. So uh, we're working with a partner organisation in Kenya on the shores of Lake Naivasha. Now the, the groups that we're working with there, they have the responsibility in their community for public sanitation. So they've been doing the litter picks and so on um, and community awareness raising about waste and recycling and some recycling initiatives as well. Um, but what we did with them was we, uh, we kind of pivoted the project to use that funding and um, to specifically address COVID resilience in the community. Um, and we installed hand washing stations, a lot of sensitization um, and awareness raising, sorry, around, um, you know, that kind of hand hygiene, because there wasn't really any, there weren't really any hand washing stations at all in the, in the village of 7,000 people. Um, so in cases like that, where our partners had to continue working, we focused very much on COVID resilience. And then um, other projects we had to put on hold, sadly, because quite often the main activities are traveling around on public transport to, to go to community meetings, yeah, talking to village elders and um, you know, young mothers and so on about waste and recycling, and then also doing waste handling. Um, you know, whether that's sorting through different materials, um, you know, to recycle them or make sure they're disposed of safely. Now, um, you know, a few months ago, when COVID first started to arrive in Europe, we looked carefully at the evidence, which at the time suggested that COVID could last on shiny surfaces, so rigid plastics and metals, for up to 72 hours, um, which was obviously a concern to us because in places where there isn't a formal waste collection service, you can't, you know, there's no way of, of saying to people, you know, please don't dump your waste until you've had it for three days. Um, so we've had to pause those. But now looking at the way that, that things are playing out, it hasn't, you know, it hasn't hit um, the countries that we're working in as much as it has in Europe. So we're looking now to, to start up activities again very slowly. But instead of doing community meetings and that kind of thing, we're now looking at doing lots more radio adverts um, and other, you know, WhatsApp messages and that kind of thing to help spread the spread awareness and spread knowledge without having to put people, you know, large groups of people together in a room together. That's understandable. So you've also created posters and how-to guides for dealing with COVID in lower-income countries, mm -hmm. such as how to make hand sanitizer. Could you walk us through some of these how-tos? Sure. So um, at Waste Aid in 2017, we published uh, the Waste Aid Toolkit, which is a, a great guide for 
communities in lower income countries for you know to make a start with managing their waste because quite often there's just there's no system at all so we produced that a few years ago um, it's an award-winning uh, publication and at the back end of that document there was 12 illustrated step-by-step how-to guides for turning waste materials into useful products like the paving tiles or like compost um, and lots of other things so when uh yeah when when the covid situation started to um you know reveal itself we created a few um, covid specific how-to guides for our partner communities and um, one of these is hand sanitizer so you can make it quite simply yourself there's plenty of instructions online and um, basically you need rubbing alcohol so the kind of alcohol that you would buy from the chemist or pharmacy um, and then some aloe vera gel or something like that that's going to make it less harsh on your skin because um, you know very strong alcohol can can really lead to dryness and irritation of the skin otherwise um, so then it's quite simple. You just mix the alcohol and aloe vera together in a bowl um, you know, add some drops of uh, essential oil, such as lavender or something like that, if you if you like um, to give it a nice flavour and um, stir it so it's nice and smooth. And then um, once it's done, you just need to put it into a small container like like we have to hand sanitise it. It's really that simple. Um, very straightforward, very affordable way for people to make their own hand sanitizer. Um, but of course, soap is actually more effective at killing germs on your hands than hand sanitizer. And what's nice is that you can actually make soap from waste oil. So it's right up our street, as you can imagine. Um, and there's instructions on our website for that as well. So you can take, for example, um, oil that's been used for frying. Um, then you need to uh, you need to mix caustic soda in water, um, and then you you pour that over the cooking oil um, mix it together gently and uh, and it starts to uh, it starts this process called saponification where it turns into a solid soap so once you've got that you leave it for I think 30 days and um, and then you can yeah slice it into into soap bars and you're good to go fantastic well thank you for that tip so how can our listeners help waste aid how can they get involved Great, thanks. So first of all, I'd encourage everyone to uh, to visit our website, wasteaid.org. Um, there's lots of ideas there on how you can get involved. Um, obviously, at the moment, this year, as I'm sure everyone is experiencing as well, um, it's not been an easy year for fundraising. Um, we normally have an annual walk for waste aid that we move around the country each year. Um, we had to cancel that sadly um, and we had some you know corporate fundraising events as well that we had to cancel so we're really really uh, welcoming to anybody that would like to get involved in fundraising and you know doing their bit to help support communities in very poor parts of the world that are, at the moment they're just drowning in plastic really um, and you know by partnering with waste aid we can really help create jobs and make sure that that plastic stays out of the environment so um, yeah, on our website, there's a get involved section um, lots of ideas there for individual fundraising or workplace fundraising. Um, we've got corporate social responsibility information. If you're in a business that would like to you know, develop a CSR partnership. Um, we've also got a shop um, where you can buy some goodies and we will shortly be um, 
putting our 2021 calendar on there. So every year we run a photography competition and we invite photos from around the world of people doing amazing things with waste. Um, we call it the Wonders of Waste photo competition and we've had some great entries this year. So we're just putting that together now and trying to uh, fill up with the last few uh, corporate sponsors. So if anybody's interested, please do get in touch. Um, yeah, so this, and that'll be on sale in the next uh, month or so, hopefully. So, um, yeah, there's lots of, lots of different ways that you can get involved, um, whether you're an individual or a business, and we really would encourage you to, to take a look. Um, you can see what other companies and other individuals have done, and, um, and yeah, hopefully, hopefully you'll be inspired to, uh, to get involved. Fantastic. Well, I hope some of our listeners will get involved. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Amy. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to the Zero Waste Code podcast, brought to you by Green Code. If you'd like to find out more about us, then head to greencode.net, where you'll find all of our social medias and can sign up to our newsletter. See you in the next episode.